It's January 13th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame, the first of 2008. And uh, to lead off this year, our guest today is Rob Shepard. And uh, any of you who are frequent readers of Outdoor Photographer, PC Photo, Digital Photo Pro Magazine know Rob Shepard's name because he is one of the editors or was one of the editors at uh, Outdoor Photographer where he was for uh, several years. Currently, he's editor at large uh, at Outdoor Photographer. And uh, but he's still uh, a pretty prolific in terms of his writing, not only in the magazine, but also in his several books that he has on photography. He recently uh, put out a book on uh, Lightroom for digital photographers only, which is a really good book for those of you who are really uh, have an affinity for Adobe's latest uh, photo editing software. But uh, having worked alongside Rob for uh, for up to I think about. Uh, I think it was about six years, five or six years, I really had a great opportunity to not only learn about the, the mechanics of the magazine business, but also have a greater appreciation for nature and outdoor photography and the role of technology and the role that technology has in just photography in general. And I think you're going to see a, a little of that in our, in our brief conversation that we had uh, over at Rob's home. And uh, I think it's really going to be a treat for many of people who are used to reading uh, Rob's uh, byline or reading his books to have an opportunity to really hear his voice and have a, a sense of his personality, which I, I, I really enjoyed uh, uh, engaging with for, for so many years and hope to continue to do so in the future. He also teaches a series of in-person workshops uh, throughout the country and including one in Costa Rica. So if you ever have a, a chance to, uh, to sign up for one of those, I really highly recommend it. But enough of me and uh, enough of me yakking. So uh, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Rob Shepard. Thanks for doing this, Rob. You bet. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, God, I don't know really where to start. I usually start at by asking people what their history was uh, in terms of photography. So I know <laughs> yours is probably hard. a long one. <laughs> it's too hard. It's it's not the, the you know it's 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 because it's just so. Uh, it is, there's no straight path in my background, and that makes it hard to describe. But uh, I will say I've, I've been interested in photography since I was a kid. I mean, it, 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 I don't know what it was that really got me interested in, in the visual, but uh, I remember playing with my parents' cameras and, and shooting with them even when I was uh, young and getting a little brownie when I was in uh, elementary school and and then the, the thing that was so uh, funny I can remember my mom giving me photographic advice make sure the sun is coming from over your shoulder you know mm. that kind of stuff because at the, at the time actually that wasn't such bad advice because equipment very often was simply not capable of dealing with backlight and with, uh, and so you'd end up with these pictures that, that uh, uh, particularly if you're photographing people or something, that, that just didn't 
look that great. So, and for the average person, they weren't about to experiment and be creative, and they just wanted a good picture of their relatives or friends. Mm-hmm. And, and and I remember that. I remember when I was 13, I couldn't afford uh, a lot of things, so I built uh, a, um, a dark room, including building my own and larger. Uh, later, I was able to actually afford one when I was in high school, but a small one. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I started uh, getting interested. When I was in college, uh, I at, at the time, I mean, Ansel Adams was one who I really admired his work and that. And, and I was determined to learn the zone system, so I bought his... Uh, basic guides to photography and and really devoted some time to it and, and it took me a couple of months to really understand mm. it but but it helped me better understand uh, not only exposure but also the craft that goes behind I think good photography today so that's that's really the old stuff but then you go beyond that it gets too complicated my, like I say my path has been a much a a zigging and zagging one until I got to where I am today yeah I know you were producing like videos and, and films while you're up in Minnesota right? yeah but yeah. Uh, how did it segue into doing you know video production into working more along the lines of stills and eventually becoming editor of outdoor photographer well I had been doing stills I mean stills I'd been doing a long time uh, and uh I had been doing some stock work and doing uh, a little bit of, of freelance work while I was working for uh, a variety of places. But back in the, the late 70s, I was actually working for the Minnesota Department of Transportation as a, an information officer slash photojournalist. And I was going around the state and photographing things for all sorts of, of uh, media and public relations purposes. And we had a a magazine there that uh, went out to all the employees, but at the time they were they were starting to do a video, and I got involved because I was really interested. I had actually done some film in college, and I was interested, so I got involved in that. And then uh, I went to a, a company, uh, a regional publishing house in Minneapolis, uh, that uh, I worked as a, a writer photographer. Uh, an associate editor, and and they also were doing some video production. I got more involved with that again, and then I I was involved so much in doing a lot of corporate work that I ended up uh, going to a place that did uh, all video production, and it was very interesting. Uh, there was a lot going on. This was in the the late eighties, early nineties, and. Um, it was interesting to see the, and I, I could see a lot of the potential. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about video, is, and this is still true to a degree, is that that the standard for video in this country is NTSC, uh, which is a national. I don't remember exactly what that means. National technical standards. Who knows? Television standards, probably. But at any rate, people would joke about it as not twice the same color. Because video was so hard, because monitors, I mean, if you remember, well, the television sets, it, you go down to a store and they're all different colors mm. and all different. I mean, it just was really hard. And we used to do uh, a lot with the, our, our technical people, would, you know, really work hard to zero things out and make the adjustments so that the stuff would look the best that it could. 
And, and I always thought that, that, that I wish you could do that in color photography. I mean, I had gotten involved so much in, in black and white and darkroom work. And I used to be love the darkroom work. I hated processing film, but I loved printing because there's so much that you could do mm-hmm. to bring things out of that negative and really get it. And, it, and I'd done a little bit of color in it, and I just gave up because it was just too hard. Um, I always, in some of my workshops and stuff, I tell people that, uh, uh, how many of you know when Ansel Adams' book of color photography came out? And most people don't know the answer to that. And it came out after he died because he never liked his color work. He actually had, there's a quote, something like, he, to him it felt like a television set out of tune. And he didn't like it because he didn't have the control over it. Um, so when Photoshop really came out, I mean, I knew some of the things were going on, but I um, had not worked with it at the time. Computers to handle that stuff were expensive for RAM and all that. I mean, I remember the days where you spent thousands of dollars for just a little bit of RAM. Um, I mean, we're talking about megabytes, not gigabytes, you know? It was just amazing. Um, so... Um, I, I wanted to do that, but I didn't have a chance. Uh, and we had moved to California uh, for a lot of reasons, in part to because uh, we sometimes say we had done our time in Minnesota. Now, I didn't get you wrong, Minnesota is a great location, but it has a very long winter. And it, we used to joke about it it's 11 months of winter and one month of rough sledding. But, uh, <laughs> but it's a. Um, but it's so, it truly is a long uh, time, and it's a very short growing season, and I love plants, and I love flowers, and so coming out to California where you've got that year-round, I mean, that was just so cool. Um, plus, it, Los Angeles has so much going on with film and photography and all that kind of stuff, and um, so we came out, I was doing some freelance work, but then I, I had an opportunity uh, to work with Peterson's Photographic Magazine, which I was only there a year, and I wasn't crazy about it, but it was interesting to really get into that part of the industry. And and, and at that time, I really got a chance then to work with Photoshop, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is what I had seen in video, but now you could do it with still photography. I saw this potential for photographers of being able to take images and work on them like they had done black and white work mm-hmm. and not have to deal with all the problems that color work had. So then um, the opportunity at Outdoor Photographer magazine came up and and uh, I went there and, and was there then for 12 years. And, and that was a great experience because I was there during this real tra- transition to digital. And, and when I was first there, boy, the, the, the uh, fear and resentment and all this kind of stuff about... Um, digital, which is not about digital photography at the time. It was about Photoshop mainly. There's so many people that were so afraid of this. And in part, it was because Photoshop and the computers that could handle it were so expensive that very few photographers could access it. And the people that were doing it were advertising people and graphics people, and they were doing all these strange and crazy things. And people thought that's what Photoshop was about. And I remember trying to tell people, I said, no, you know, there's really this potential as the traditional photographer of being able to use this technology to get better pictures and people would go oh no you know this isn't and as we started to do some things in in outdoor photographer uh that people were 
real resistant. And then we started PC Photo Magazine, uh, and people would go, oh, just leave that in PC Photo Magazine. This isn't for nature and outdoor photographers. And, and I'm going, no, no, wait, you know, it really is. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's not about taking a uh, lion from the zoo and putting it in a picture of the uh, from the uh, veldt in, in Africa it's 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 about photography it's yeah. about really about photography and and, and now today I think people have, have it's like any time that a new new technology a new a new phase of photography happens there's a, there's a group of people that say well that's not real photography you know, I mean, when people went from you know using four by five to you know thirty five millimeter, you know, it's like oh, yeah. using those old cameras. That's not really photography, and I think it's true. You know, every you know every every major change has that sort of that sort of reaction to it. Um, in terms of the work that you were seeing, you know, early on in, in, in that transition, particularly in the in in the field of landscape and wildlife photography. What were some of the things that you were seeing then, and, and how do you compare that to the work that you're seeing now that's either uh, captured digitally or that was um, enhanced using uh, applications like Photoshop? Well, I think there were two things. Is that I think some of the people that were doing it were a little too enhanced, enhanced, too enamored with the technology. And sometimes they do a lot of gee whiz things that that you kind of go, um, well, that's nice, you can do that, but it's not really helping the the message. Is it? I mean, you'd see these odd things that people would they would cut out things from one picture and put it in another. I mean, you used to see a lot of these jumping whales. That you know were obviously not in that picture, and you go, "What is that about? That's just stupid." Um, I, I don't care about. Uh, what, I mean, there's a whole other issue of the ethics and stuff of that kind of stuff. But to me, it was just stupid. It didn't look good. It wasn't appropriate. That was one thing, and you don't see so much of that today. And then another thing that, that people would do these real weird things with colors and stuff. I mean, you could tell that they were done. It was just, but there were these real wacky, weird things. I mean, it, it looked like something that had escaped the old '70s psychedelic times. And it's like, you know what? Those days are over. Mm-hmm. We don't need to do that again now. The other thing that that you also saw, uh, and I remember this from, I was at a, a, a trade show in New York, and, and Adobe had a, a big thing. A lot of photographers were paying attention. This was still early on, and most photographers weren't using uh, Photoshop yet. And they were showing a landscape uh, with uh, Delicate Arch at, at Arches National Park. And then they were cutting out a hot air balloon and showing, gee, look, you can make it go under the delicate arch. And I'm going, no, that's not what, you know, you're, you're going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, that for some people in certain types of photography, like advertising photography, and, and there's some creative work that people like to play around with, you know, that's their thing. That's a part of, of that that work, uh, that way of working. But for most photographers, that was not what they wanted to do and um, now though I think finally people are, are really understanding that that Photoshop uh, and um, digital photography as a whole gives them a tool um, it is not a controlling thing see I think sometimes people thought well it's going to control my photography it's going to make me do things I don't want to do I said no it isn't you can control it um, a lot of times people will look at, at Photoshop, and I see this in workshops and stuff, and people get so intimidated by it. And, I, and I'm going, okay, let's, let's back up a minute. Who's in control of this? 
is Photoshop in control? Or are you and your photography in control? And I said, you need to take charge. It's your photograph that's important, not what tools you remember in Photoshop, not what tools you can use on your picture, but what does your photograph really need? And I, I think that we're seeing now more people really paying attention to that. Um, you're still seeing people, that I think sometimes rather sophisticated photographers that are misusing the tools. Uh, one thing that you still see a lot of today, which I think is a mistake in nature photography, is the overuse of the hue saturation tool in Photoshop. Is that people want things? I mean, they used to love Velvia, but Velvia was uh, a rather highly saturated film. It still is, but people aren't using it as much. And people thought, well, I'll get Velvia by increasing the saturation. Well, no, you won't. Actually, you'll get garish, ugly pictures. Mm -hmm. And I've seen too many situations where you go, you know, those colors don't exist. Though not only do they not exist in nature, but I don't actually want to see them existing on this page. <laughs> it's just not good. Um, but, but like I said, there are people, though, who are exploring um, what Photoshop can do as truly the darkroom, uh, like the old black and white darkroom. And, and I, what, what I see in the future, uh, to kind of take this a little further, because I think that nature photography has been real slow to kind of adapt to what can and can't be done um, and what, how people are going to use the technologies. And now that people are really involved with these technologies, people are starting to explore uh, new possibilities. And uh, I mean, some of the new possibilities certainly, I mean, one actually isn't so new, but uh, uh, panoramic pictures. I mean, people used to love panoramics, but they were expensive uh, because you had to buy this, you know, dedicated equipment. It's expensive. You had extra gear and all that kind of stuff. And now, I mean, you shoot panoramics really quite easily with any equipment. Uh, another thing which I think is really in its infancy is um, HDR or the um, high dynamic range photography where people will take multiple pictures of a scene at different exposures and then bring those together into one. Um, that can be done very simply in Photoshop if somebody takes a picture for the bright areas and, and another picture with the dark areas and then you combine those in Photoshop. But there's also HDR software where you can take more pictures and it will actually take the whole range of tonality that you get from those pictures and bring them into one. Um, I've seen some really neat things done that way and I've seen some really ugly things done that way. Again, I think sometimes people get caught up in the technology and so it becomes this gee whiz thing. Gee whiz, you know, look at what I can do. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that, 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 that brings up for me is the whole idea that, and I guess to some extent this has always been the case in photography but this idea that before you can be allow yourself to be creative, you have to learn all this technical stuff. And I think what happens is people get fixated with the software, or with the cameras, or with the lenses, and you know the the methodology. But they're really not ever developing a, a way of seeing, so they can produce all these photographs that technically may be very proficient in terms of you know Photoshop and color management and stuff, but are kind of hollow. You know, and and yeah, what in in your workshops and when you speak to, to readers, you know, how how big of an issue do you think that is? For me, I think it, it's 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 probably the number one for for me. But is your experience any different? I, no, I agree with you totally. I, and I, I I think actually that's 
always been you had mentioned something before about over the, as you go through the years technology sometimes people have difficulty dealing with it I think that's been a part of photography for a long because photography has always been part technology and part art and some people really get caught up in the technology I mean that that it's not new today. I mean, this has been true for a very long time where people, they can tell you about how great their lens is in terms of its resolution and all this kind of stuff, but their pictures don't look very good. Um, you know, or they can tell you about, oh, I've got this expensive camera and I have all this gear and I have all this stuff. It says, but what are your pictures like, you know? And Well, but let me tell you about my gear, you know? And... Um, I think that that's always been part of it. I remember um, reading uh, years ago um, one of my favorite photography authors who uh, is no longer in print, but uh, I think the photographers today could still learn a lot from him, and that was Andreas Feininger, who was the... um, he was a photographer with Life magazine and then did a lot of books uh, uh, on photography in the 60s and early 70s. And he did a book called The Creative Photographer that is a wonderful, wonderful book. And he talks uh, in then, too, about this hollowness sometimes. He said that he said that there are many, uh, at the time, uh, camera clubs that uh, he said you'd see these technically perfect pictures of he said two subjects that you saw a lot of and he was in New York City so the two subjects he saw a lot of one was curled curled rope on the docks uh, down by the the, the uh, waterfront and uh, as he would call them, street bums. Today, I guess we might call them homeless or whatever. Uh, people that had these craggy, bearded faces and so forth. And and he says, okay, so you can make this technically perfectly sharp kind of a thing. So what? You know, is there more to the picture? And and as I think I, that I know from your work too, you know, that, that you want to go beyond just this technically perfect picture. When you do a portrait, I know that, that you want something more than that. When I do a picture in, in nature, is that, that I don't want to just do this technically perfect picture. And I think nature photography has a real danger too um, because there has been this long history of people using large format cameras and and with all this 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 really great detail that you can find in the pictures is that uh, a lot of people then start equating detail and sharpness and all this kind of stuff as being the end result and yet you know, a lot of those pictures it's like okay it's not that hard to do today i mean equipment is so good and there's so many classes available and so forth that that it's not that hard if you work at it mm-hmm. to get that type of picture. What's harder to do is to find something that is that speaks uniquely to the way you see the world. And um, I, I think that that's where there's always potential and where any individual who starts feeling, and I know sometimes people say, oh, you know, there's so much competition in photography today, in nature photography, there's especially a lot. Of oh, there's so much competition. And he says, well, yeah, but there's never competition for your vision if it's truly something that you're, you're, you're showing, because it's yours. Well, that, that's something that we're talking about, that, that very personalized way of seeing things, uh, seeing, seeing the world, particularly in nature and landscape photography. 
what is that something in terms of you as a viewer being able to recognize it? Because I know when we worked at the office, you, we would get books all the time or portfolios, and you know, and a, a lot of these images were of um, similar locations, you know, because a lot of the places that they're that there are found in these books or in these portfolios are places that a lot of people go to. But what was that for you? That that's something that well, all of a sudden when you when you saw it, you realized that you know that this person was really making it their own. Can, can you sort of quantify what that something is? That, that's, that's hard because I, th I think it is something that's very visual and you respond to it visually. It's sometimes hard to put into words. But I do think there is something there. Um, before I answer that, I'm going to say what it is that's, that kind of kicks it out of that group, uh, the ones that don't make it. And the ones that don't make it, you'll see a lot of this today. I mean, I, I used to say, um, I guess I, that I, I still do a little bit, but it's, it's probably a little harsh, is to say that, that, that you, know, you could get a bunch of submissions and just change the names on the pictures and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because people are trying to do the same sort of pictures. And, and on the one hand, some people will say, well, so what? If people are happy and they're taking pictures and maybe they don't care about submitting it to a magazine but I think there is a so what and that is I think as individuals we all have unique ways of seeing the world and I think that when we start running into trouble is when everything starts being the same and starts being homogenized and and in nature photography I think there's a real danger because if all the nature pictures all kind of look the same then people go oh you know the world's okay it's just all the same as it's always been, and we don't have to worry about it. There's no environmental issues, no problems, stuff like that. Whereas when people start responding to something deeper inside themselves as they're photographing and saying, what is it that I'm really responding to here? What is it that I am finding unique, and how can I express that? Now, how can I express that? That question is the technology, too. I mean, because you have to understand how to use your technology, how to use... Uh, whatever tools it is that you're doing to express it. And if you're not using those tools well, you may have some great ideas, but as photographically, they're not going to come across. So that's a problem. But assuming that you have the basic skills and you have the basic ideas, is that where a lot of people run into trouble is that they say, oh, you know, I really love this this picture. You know, I remember seeing those pictures that David Munch had, and he has this great thing where there's this foreground and background. I'm going to take pictures like that. Well, okay, the only person who really takes great David Munch pictures is David Munch. Um, and anybody else is just a copy of that. And how do you find your own pictures? People will say, well, it's hard because there's so much nature photography, and that's true. But I think where, where you see something, you say, ah, oh, there's something special, is when it's something that's unexpected, that's something that, that I haven't seen before, it's something that, that is beyond what everybody else is doing. Uh, and I think that's true of any type of photography. And I think that where that comes from is when people quit trying to do a certain type of photography. They quit trying to do photography like somebody else, or they quit trying to do um, a photography that is going to be prize winning or it's going to get published all over or whatever it is they quit that and they start digging deeper and saying what is it that I find is interesting what can I do 
in the way that I'm handling this subject that relates to me, that's important to me, that I care about. Um, there's a picture that I have that that um, that is just it's a simple picture that I like a lot of a um, it's a little salamander. It's a red eft uh, in. Um, uh, that I shot in Vermont, and it's shot with a wide-angle lens up close. I'm only a couple inches from it, so that you have this little salamander and then the surroundings of this woods. You see the woods and all this kind of stuff around it. And I realized that about that picture that it was important to me in a lot of reasons is that it was unique to me because I'd never seen that particular picture before. Um, and it was also... Um, not just unique like, oh, look at me, I've done something different. But no, it was something that it meant something to me. I care about these little critters in the environment. And and I wanted, and I've always cared about ecology and the environment. And to me, this showed this little critter in his environment in a way that communicated something about that place for me. And I think it communicated it for other people too. So it, it became an important picture. Um now, one of the things that, that, that when you, anyone who starts taking pictures, that you start looking through the viewfinder, you know, the first picture you often see through that viewfinder or on your LCD is usually something that is colored by other things, you know, by the way you photographed the past, the way other people photographed, the way other people have told you that you should photograph her, or somebody says, gee, I really like what you're doing, then all of a sudden you take pictures like that. Um, it, but if you then take another step and say, okay, I'll take that picture. Now, what other pictures can I get of this subject? Mm-hmm. You keep looking for additional pictures that say, okay, you know, what am I really liking about this subject? What am I really finding exciting about this subject? What else can I make from this subject? And you start finding those new pictures. Now, the danger of this, and I think there is sort of a danger, is that for a lot of people, you're going to start seeing pictures say, I've never seen this before. What if people don't like this? Mm-hmm. What if now I start showing people this and they say, oh, why did you take that picture? And all of a sudden you have this little critic that comes in the back of your head and prevents you from taking unique, unexpected pictures. And um, and then you're back to taking pictures like everybody else. Yeah. Jay Maisel has a saying about, you know, when you're taking pictures of something and you got the shot, keep going. Oh, yeah. Because you don't have the shot yet. You yeah, know, you you what you if you're conscious of the fact that you've got it, there's still something more there, and you just can't stop. Um, um, That's great. Shooting. But one of the things I liked about when you were coming back from these trips and you were you'd show me, yeah, pictures that you shot is the fact that you weren't always using an SLR. Oftentimes you were using a small, uh, compact digital camera to produce some some marvelous photographs, and I think a lot of people think. You know, um, an SLR is the only way to go. But you show that in a lot of your pictures that a small compact camera um, doesn't have to restrict you in terms of the kind of images that that you produce. How big of a role do they do they play in in, in your work? You know, that's it's interesting. I mean, I used to do that in part because the SLRs were expensive and and uh, um, partly. But another reason was because the cameras that I really liked were the ones that had an articulating LCD so that the LCD would move around and I could put the camera in all sorts of places. I could put it on the ground. I could put it in a real low angle and not have to contort myself to see through the viewfinder because it was a live LCD. I was seeing what was coming through the the, the uh, lens. Um, I could put it up high. I mean, there's so many things that I could do that it really expanded 
my I think that, that my vision of, of what I was seeing um, then when digital cameras digital SLR started becoming less expensive um, certainly the versatility of them the, the interchangeable lenses um, the uh, the higher image quality that you could get at higher ISO settings the, the small uh, advanced uh, compact digital cameras could do really fine work if you didn't try to use a higher ISO setting higher ISO settings weren't very good there the noise was too high but um, but I think that some of those things still colored the way I was working, and I still liked using these little cameras because because they were small, because you could put them in positions that you couldn't put an SLR very easily. I could get new angles and new ways of seeing things, and, and I really liked that. Well, now um, I don't do that as much uh, because I have equipment at SLRs to allow me to do things like that. But I still have a little compact uh, digital camera. Uh, um, it's not very big, but it also still has an articulating LCD. It's a little um, Canon PowerShot A640, I think. Um, but what I love about it is that, that I can take it with me, throw it in my pocket, and it's, it, it, I can explore the world photographically and not have to always think that I have to be so serious with, you know, I take out a camera and lots of lenses and all this kind of stuff. And so I can just respond to things that I see. And with that articulating LCD, I can move it around and try different things. That's why when um, the manufacturers now have started coming out with live LCDs on digital SLRs, and I think that's a really big deal. Um, Unfortunately, most of them, they're locked to the back of the camera. Uh, the first that tilted back was uh, Olympus's E330 that, uh, that you actually could tilt the LCD and see what was th coming through the lens, and you had interchangeable lenses. And, and that was just wonderful. I was able to use that to do, really expand some of the things that, that I was doing. And as a nature photography, what was it, photographer, what was interesting about that is that it was almost like looking at a view camera because you could set this on a tripod and then tilt this little LCD back and you saw it was coming through the lens and in, and people would say, well, it's not as bright, it's hard to see in the uh, bright conditions. Mm -hmm. Well, that was true of a view camera too. A view camera, you couldn't see the, the ground glass and bright light at all. You'd have to actually cover your head to, to see it. Well, now, was, but here was this bright little image that was right side up too, not upside down like in a view camera. And you respond, it's really interesting, you respond to what's in that LCD differently than you do through a viewfinder. It's not for every type of subject, but when you're looking at this, you're seeing it as a little image. You're not sighting through a viewfinder, you're not framing up. You're looking more at a little picture, mm -hmm. and you see it as a little picture, and that was so cool for me. Um, and now... Um, that uh, Canon and Nikon have the, uh, live LCDs, which is great. And now they don't tilt or, or rotate, but still you can use them like, again, like a, uh, a view camera is that you set it up on a tripod and look at this little image. That, and I just find that so cool. And Olympus has their new E3, which I love because it has an articulating LCD. It actually comes out and rotates. So now you can put your camera in any position, vertical, horizontal, down low, up high, and see what's coming through the lens. Now the disadvantage to all of these 
is that the um, there is a delay because uh, of the except not on the E330 but all the other ones there's a delay when you take the picture because the mirror has to come down some exposure things mm-hmm. have to be happen autofocus whatever and then the picture's taken but NPO sellers there's all this delay but in some ways that's actually more like a, um, a view camera because the view camera you had a view camera took you time You'd have to cock the shutter. You'd have to t- take the um, the dark slide out, take the picture, uh, put the dark slide back in. You know, and it, it it and so in a way, it forces you to to slow down and look at the thing. But I, but I, mm. but the big thing is, I like the view, and it really changes the way that you look at at your picture as you take it. Yeah, you know, one of, one of the things in terms of my experience of a photograph is just you know when I started shooting digital, I I got. I stopped the whole process at the computer, you know. I would download the images, I would look on the computer, I would edit them, but I wasn't making prints. And I realized that I wasn't finished yet. And there's always just a a completely different experience of a photograph and about the whole process when I take the time to to make the print. You know, and uh, I know you're really big on on you know making good quality prints, but uh, what, what's what do you feel is is what does it mean to you to have that that, that photographic print at the end of the of the process, despite the fact that you know with digital you don't really need to to make it. You can have it. You can upload it. You can share it with you know thousands of people on the internet. You know, I think it's a, it's a different experience, and actually, I think one thing that's cool about digital is that we have the ability to experience photographs in many ways. We experience them when we are are dealing with them on the computer screen directly. We can use them in slideshows on the on the computer screen. We can project them. We can uh, have them show up on our television set. We can, and one of the things that's, that's really cool is uh, Apple TV. Is you can put uh, a your pictures into th- that system and then have them display on your TV and constantly be changing. And I mean, and um, and then there's the print too. And I think the print is still and always will be something different because it's it's now this piece of work that is there. I mean, like there's some prints that are up here in the walls that you see that, that uh, and you experience that in a different way because it stays. It's not changing. You look at it and you you enjoy it. You enjoy the experience of the photograph, your experience of the subject, the location, whatever. And there's there's many things that happen there, but it, it is like any uh, art form. There is something to that uh, experience itself of the print. Um, I think what's interesting when you were saying that that you know going into the computer was one thing, but it wasn't until you started printing where you saw some other things. One of the interesting parts of this that I find is that there are a lot of people who think that the ideal is to make a print that looks like their computer screen, and and um, that may or may not be appropriate. Where I think that's limiting is if somebody says, well, it should look like the computer screen. And I'm going, okay, when was the last time that anybody asked you to show them the computer screen to make sure your print looked like it. Anybody who sees and experiences a print experiences it as a print. And that print has to stand as its own Mm -hmm. thing. And a print is a different animal than your screen. 
your computer screen. It, it, there's a whole bunch of things that are different about it in the way that we interact with it, the way we see it, the way that the colors are. I mean, all these different things. Psychologically, it's a different thing. And so people respond to a print in a certain way that the print has to be something that somebody's going to respond to and as a print. They don't want to see something else. They don't want to see, you know, comparison to the computer screen. They don't want. They want to say, "What's there?" Because that's the only thing they have mm-hmm. is that print, and there isn't anything else. And they have to respond to that print as a print. Yeah. Well, the way I always end the conversation is that I ask the photographer to recommend one other photographer who they suggest that listeners go and check out. So, who would that be for you, and why? Oh wow. Uh, there are so many photographers that, that I think are interesting today that do, do wonderful work. Um, they, uh, boy, you know, you put me on the spot because I have to really, I mean, because like I say, there's so many people that, that are doing, I think, really neat work. Uh, certainly Jack Dykinga is a, a wonderful photographer. Uh, he is based in Arizona, and he's known for his uh, large format landscape work in Arizona. does wonderful work. He does a lot of, of huge prints, and one reason why he stays with the large format cameras is because he's doing like four foot by six foot prints, um, wonderfully detailed, uh, and that's all um, digitally printed and uh, does some wonderful work. I think he's wonderful. Um, Franz Lanting is certainly a uh, wonderful nature photographer. And what's interesting about him is he's a very thoughtful nature photographer. He does not deal with photography the same as a lot of other photographers do. He simply, uh, he will build on a picture. And we talked about finding the next picture and stuff. He will take a picture and say, oh, that's not it. And he'll keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. He may spend days doing that uh, to get... Now, that's not the only thing he does, but for certain key pictures that he wants for an assignment or something like that, he'll really work to find. And he's not improving the picture. If you look at the first picture compared to the last picture, it's not a better picture of the first picture. It's a different picture. Mm-hmm. And he's finding a new way. He just wants to find a new, and for him, unique and better way of presenting um, his pictures. And... Um, I think, too, another thing that that people would be well worth looking into, this has nothing to do with digital today, Um, but uh, for Photoshop, what I think for nature photographers, one of the best places to learn what to do with Photoshop, not to learn the tools, but what to actually do with it, is to go back to Ansel Adams' basic camera uh, books. If you go back to his... uh, and, and they're still in print. You can get the, um, the camera and lens, the, the negative and the print. And a lot of the stuff in the negative and the print is with chemicals and things like that. You're not going to get much out of. But he spent some time in the beginnings of all of these books talking about the approach to photography, the craft of photography, how you look at images, and so forth. And in addition, he spends a lot of time on a lot of the photographs in the books saying what he did and how he dealt with the picture. And uh, those are things that, that you can do in Photoshop. 
Uh, he also has a book, which I don't know if this one is still in print or not, but it's a very fine book if you can find it at a library or a used bookstore. It's called Examples, The Making of 40 Photographs by Ansel Adams. And in that one, he shows you a picture, and then he tells you what he did, what it was that was interesting about taking the picture, how he took it, how he exposed the picture, what he was looking for when he was doing the exposure, and then what he did in the darkroom, which is what we do in Photoshop today. You know, how he darkened one area, how he felt one area was too dark, what one area needed to be light, and all those things. And it's just a, a wonderful uh, approach to photography that I think very much applies today for somebody working in Photoshop. Well, thanks, Rob. This is wonderful. You bet. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments or suggestions on the show, um, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com